So we're back in Proverbs tonight. I did forget one announcement. We have uh, a new Calvary Chapel magazine out there. So um, this one's actually got Chuck on the front of it. And I'm sure there's some great content in here. So pick up your Calvary Chapel magazine. One thing that we like to use these for, you take one home, read it, check it out, drop it off somewhere. Put it at a you know, doctor's office, somewhere else that maybe they still have magazines, and, and kind of spread those around. So that's kind of what they're for. Tonight, we are back in Proverbs. Last study I did was week before last. Um, and uh, Paul filled in last week for me. I watched it online. He did a great job. And I'm thankful that uh, he was able to step in and do that. But tonight, we're going to be in Proverbs chapters 14 and 15. And these chapters cover a wide range of topics. The way. We've talked about the way. There is a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. And physically, spiritually, and we're kind of those, those two paths are something that Proverbs continues to sort out for us. A big part of these passages um, is also our speech. And we've talked about that a good bit. I'm not going to focus a real heavily on that. I would encourage you, read some of those chapters. They're so, I mean, some of those Proverbs. They're so convicting. The things, our words, our speech, and how they glorify God, or even kind of uh, diminish our witness in the eyes of the world if we use our, our words wrongly. Um, these passages talk about grief, anger, our hearts. And again, this, this concept of the fear of the Lord, which I want to coin a new term tonight, is called photal. Can you say that? Photal. Fear of the Lord. <laughs> so, F-O-T-L. And uh, like I said, some of these things we've, talk, we've touched on before, but um, maybe we'll look at them in a little bit different light tonight. So I'm going to read this first verse, and uh, it's actually verse 2 of chapter 14, and it says, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is devious in his ways despises him. So we have these two contrasts, upright versus devious, fear and reverence versus hatred. Okay, you see those contrasts in that, little, in that little proverb there. Our walk will either be straight or crooked depending on how we view, receive, and apply God's word. And we've discussed Jesus' admonition in the Gospels to seek that narrow gate, that narrow, difficult way, as opposed to the wide, easy way that the majority of people are just going to, it's not even a seeking, they just end up there because they're not looking for that narrow gate. But I'd like to view this passage not as much as the path itself, but rather our posture or our relationship to the path. Because we have this uprightness, right? We think about upright, standing upright. And then the one who is devious, think about that as someone who is like stooped over, someone who's crooked. And that's, that's the idea we have throughout Proverbs. So when you're upright, we're looking straight ahead. We're looking up. We're looking at the cross. We're looking at Christ, not down on the carnal things of this world. And I like to think of that as unburdened. You're unburdened. You're able to stand upright. You're light. You're, you're quick on your feet kind of thing, that uprightness. 
devious in his ways. I want to picture someone who is stooped over under the burden of sin, but unwilling to look up, trying to walk their own crooked way, carrying too much, weighted down by corruption. So Proverbs speaks often this idea, it'll say a few times, we've, we've even talked about it before, rottenness in the bones. You guys remember that? Rottenness in the bones. And we talked about that in a relation, even in the marriage relationship in the last study. And my great-grandmother, Keener, right, she had terrible osteoporosis. She had fallen and injured her back at some point, but she had gotten to the point where her, her you guys know what that is, right, where your bones become really porous, and she was bent over, like literally at a 90-degree angle. I mean, she could not, I never saw her upright in my whole life because, you know, she was my great-grandmother. And... And I think spiritually, that's the effect that walking in sin has on our souls. But those unwilling to avail themselves of God's grace blame God for their pain. They blame God for the fruit of their own decisions and end up despising God. You see that? So they're carrying this burden of sin that they want to carry. They've got this rottenness in their life and the things aren't going according to the way they think they should, and then they'll, they'll blame God for it. But God's saying, I want that burden. You don't have to carry that burden. And that's the difference of being upright or being devious. And we think of being devious as being dishonest, and that's, that's accurate, but dishonest often even with ourselves and with our own state of sin in relationship to our Savior. To fear God unburdens us. Despising him weighs us down and corrupts us. The next few verses I want to look at, it says, A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. So we see that, again, that folly, that deception, and it's, it's, it's not deceiving anybody else, right? We look at other people's lives as deceiving. We're deceiving ourselves. But crooked posture results in crooked, dishonest speech. Here we see the result of rejecting the truth of God's word. The scoffer lies as naturally as breathing. I think that's interesting that it says he, he breathes out lies. It's just part of his nature. When we turn away from God, we're, we don't even have to try to lie. Even if we're just agreeing with the world's philosophy, we become a scoffer, and we're breathing out those ideas, those lies. John 8.44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil. And this is, he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day when he's speaking this passage. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God is the only one that his word is truth. If we depart from that, the default is just a lie, and I think we understand that. 
It's not, like I said, it's not something even always intentional, but that scoffer, that person that's breathing out this thing, this is part of their nature. Um, it can simply be agreeing with the world's ideas, ideas about morality, about science and creation, even political views, ideas about life or priorities. And that's when we look at this, when we say a false witness breathes out lies, a false witness is one who denies that Jesus Christ is the Lord, right? He's the one that denies that God created all the world, that God is sovereign, that he's in control of everything. So we don't want to, I don't want to characterize like this individual out here that's necessarily even, even um, hostile towards God openly, but maybe someone that's just going along with the world and this paints them in pretty stark terms because God sees the heart. But leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. I mean, that's just common sense, isn't it? <laughs> that's common sense. Read, uh, so the next, few ver- the next couple verses, I'm going to move down. He says in verse 11, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So again, this great contrast that that Solomon does. So he's contrasting a couple things here, right? The house and the tent. We've got destruction or flourishing. And they're kind of opposed, aren't they? So naturally, we would think a house more secure than a tent. Do you agree? (laughs) Do you agree? Most families do not aspire to buy their first tent. (laughs) Or think of a tent as a safe and comfortable place to raise a family. And in our culture today, tents, especially if they're in the city limits, guys, are commonly associated with homelessness, with being transient. But that's that's not how God's painting says you can have a tent in God's will, and it's more secure than the most palatial estate you could ever build. And that's that contrast, is did God build the house, or did we build the house? What is built upon? You know, a popular term these days is a forever home. Has anybody used that term, a forever home? Because I'm an appraiser. I hear that a lot. I hear, this is my forever home. This is my forever home. Meaning, this is the perfect dream home where they plan on residing the rest of their lives. Um, A house can mean prosperity and longevity and can even be a status symbol in our culture. But like I said, I can't tell you how many times I've seen forever homes for sale after just a couple years or even after months because life changes and we don't expect it. But no one ever talks about their forever tent. Right? No one talks about their forever tent. Another companion verse in the next chapter I want to bring into that uh, is in chapter uh, 15, verse 25. He says, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. So again, the house, but now it's the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. So ultimately, like I alluded to, it's about the foundation. Is it built on a rock of faith and obedience, 
or the shifting sands of rebellion and the world's ideology. Now, in our culture, it would seem right to own a house. It would seem right. It seems like a good financial move. That's why we you know, invest in these homes that we live in. Yet without him, his word, and his spirit, the most luxury, luxurious of homes is headed for ruin. But contrast that with Paul says that we dwell in tents, that our bodies are tents. says this tent that we reside in, this frail body, will one day be raised incorruptible at the resurrection while all of our houses will be destroyed. There's a literal fulfillment to this proverb coming. But even in terms of our spiritual investment, God is saying a tent with him is more secure, again, than a house of our own making. The next few verses, and this, this, all these verses that we've gone through so far are kind of talking about that way, that path. What are we investing in? What are we prioritizing? And these next couple verses have to do with the backslider. It says, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. And again, to continue to look at the way, we see first this discussing of fruit, that which is produced in our life by our choices. And it says the, the backslider in heart, the one who's turned away from God, who's going their own way, will be filled with the fruit of his ways, but a good man will also be filled with the fruit of his ways. We often focus on the negative consequences of sin in the church, and, and I'm guilty of that. We, that's kind of what we think. I don't want to sin because I don't want this bad thing to happen to me. I don't want to sow these bad seeds in my life because I don't want these bad circumstances or consequences. But did you know the flip side of that, we're promised if we sow righteousness, if we sow things that are pleasing to God, that also bears fruit in our life, and even to a greater extent. The Apostle Paul would declare in Romans, the wages of sin is death. But right after that, he declares, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Often my focus has been on that first part, the wages of sin is, is death. And that is a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate worry, of course. But what a greater promise is it that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not wages, not earnings, but a gift. It's something God blesses us with. Good things are things of faith, of love and forgiveness. One of my favorite verses is Hosea 10.12. He says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And we see that whole circle of things. If we sow righteousness, God will bless us with more, well, abundantly. The next couple verses that we looked at, that we read, um, shed some light on what that walk really, really looks like if we, if we envision this person that's um, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his, self, to his steps. We see that he's 
cautious and he turns away from evil, whereas the fool would just be reckless and keep going. So we see someone that's walking slowly, contentedly, cautiously. I picture during the light of day, where we can see, you can see where you're going. Checking the weather before you go. Studying maps so you know the route where you're going. That's, that's that type of walk contrasted to this fool that's walking hurriedly and unprepared, frantic, and dismissive of hazards. And I was on search and rescue for a number of years. We had to, you know, get people that were in this state off the trail often because they're off trail. They chose to go in bad weather. They're unprepared. They don't have the right clothing. And that's what this is. That's, this is a spiritual analogy to that. When we're walking in the way of God, there's these, there's these things that we do to prepare that we take our time. You know, the world is always in such a rush. I had to drive up over Eight Mile Hill twice today. And it's, I don't know, what, what is all the traffic in town right now for? Is it, is it like Columbus Day or something? Is it, but the traffic is insane. And coming up and down that hill, I mean, it's a, it, was a, it was intense going back up. And I thought, what a, and now I'm in a hurry. Because everybody else is around me is in a hurry. Now I'm in a hurry. I don't even need to be in a hurry. I got there early, got there, you know, anyway, got here early. But um, that's the world about everything. You get that phone call, hey, we've got a great deal for you, but you've got to make a decision right now. Okay, well, give me some time to think about it. Nope, you've got to make the, it's, it's right now. And the world's always pushing us, pushing us, pushing us in a hurry, to get us in a hurry so that we can't hear that voice of God that's trying to, to give us that wisdom that he wants to impart to us. But again, we see that fool reckless and careless as opposed to walking cautiously. What's up ahead? What is... What, what is the outcome of this? Thinking about circumstances before we take those first steps. A couple other verses down, and we're going to skip all the way down to chapter 15, um, verses 9 and 10. Again, speaking of that way, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. So we saw sowing righteousness, but now pursuing righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. So we've talked before about this word abomination. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy word, but it's, it's anything opposed to the law of God, something that is ritually unclean, like the worship of idols and its evil practices. Um, and here's the thing, these ancient practices included the sacrifice of children. They included all kinds of perverted type of rituals and things like that. But it's a lot more subtle these days. If we walk in a way that departs from the truth, we are, in fact, practicing idolatry. When we pursue the way of love and sacrifice, that's when we follow Jesus in giving our lives away. You know, that wide road that Jesus warns us about, that wide, easy road. And that road a lot of us have walked on for a time. We realize that there's no love on that road, that it's a dry road. There's no provisions on that road. It's a desperate road. It makes us walk with stooped posture. 
trying desperately every day to simply put one tired foot in front of the other, which ultimately leads to death in this life and in the age to come. And so we've talked all this stuff about the way. How do we find this way, this path? Thankfully, we have someone that's already led by example. Does anybody know? Someone who's led the way. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me on this path, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Death to self, essentially, in Christ, not just for anything under the sun, but in Christ, for Christ, for his people, leads to eternal life. Serving self, what he's telling us, serving self, living just for ourselves, results in the loss of life. And that's, you know, that I think we, we all understand that in here. And that's what we strive for. None of us do that perfectly. Now, on that note, on that note of Jesus dying for us, denying himself, taking up his cross, leading the way for us to follow, I want to go all the way back up to chapter 14, verse 4. And I love this proverb. I've always liked this proverb, and it's just... It seems it has so many different levels of understanding, so many different levels of application. And it says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. So the contrast we have here is one of abundance or sanitation, provision or scarcity. Essentially what this is telling us, we can either be clean and broke or we can be rich and dirty. <laughs> that kind of, and, and that's just so common sense, isn't it? Now, I'm, I, I, I'm sure there's some of you agricultural people in here that understand this perfectly. You may even right now be picturing your stalls at home. I don't know if they're clean. Maybe you wish they were cleaner. Maybe they're dirty. But you understand that picture very clearly. I've been to a lot of properties where you know, there's barns and everything, and they are filthy, right? If you have livestock in there, horses, cattle, whatever it is, they're filthy. And, um, but there's a benefit. There's a benefit to that. And that's why, that's why we have them. Does anybody in here have a barn with livestock in it right now? Are we? I thought y'all, you guys had a donkey, I thought. The, you don't have your donkey anymore? Okay. I'm, that was a cute donkey. But in any case, today... Most of us don't have an ox. But our ox could be a tractor or a car. You know, there's maintenance, insurance, gas. But many of us need a car to work. Without a car, we'd have a hard time making ends meet. So I think we, we understand that on, on that level, right? That, that, that there's going to be a sacrifice for us to be productive. But what's the spiritual application? And what we see... Um, is uh, just as investing in an ox causes increase but gets the stable dirty, so also investing in the kingdom of God can get messy. But that is how great harvests are obtained. 
Agreed? If we invest in God's kingdom, it doesn't keep us clean. As a matter of fact, I think anybody in ministry would be quick to testify to the fact that, man, it gets, it gets really hard. It gets really messy at times. And not just in ministry. Sometimes that can be in family relationships. It can be in all kinds of other areas of our life. But getting involved with people in a way that pleases God is messy. That's the point. But that's how great harvests are obtained. It's by insulating ourselves from others, from the messiness of ministry or relationships, that we can keep our life clean. Even choosing to associate with people, even other believers who only think like we think, who vote like we vote, in our culture, maybe even people who are well off and don't really need our help. That's how we stay clean in our life. But clean can mean empty, impoverished spiritually. And that's not at all how Jesus lived. Jesus once referred to himself as an ox. You guys know what passage I might be referring to? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, he said, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus took the yoke upon himself, becoming the servant of all. In Mark, he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He submitted willingly, and like an ox, prepared the soil of the whole world for salvation. There's no way to stay clean wearing a yoke plowing a field. Jesus says, if you've, if you've put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom, essentially. That's a paraphrase. But there's no way to stay clean and do that, is there? There's no way to stay aloof you know, I would not wear this outfit out plowing a field. You see, I'm wearing white pants for those on the video. There's no way to stay clean. It requires submission and humility. It requires going into fields that we didn't anticipate or expect. And the heaviest burden we can bear is one of our own sin. But when we yoke ourselves to him, that burden is lifted. The cleanness then becomes not an outward clean, cleanliness or that of a perfectly organized life, but a cleanness of heart which allows us to rest in him and his finished work. The next passages that we're going to look at, they deal with grief. And I was working on this study and, and you know, I just, again, we're just brokenhearted for the Miller family today. And... Um, this is a verse that I quoted to them today. The heart knows, and this is in, this is in chapter um, 4, verses 10, and I'm going to do verse 11 also. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. And here we glimpse Solomon's heart and personal experience. In Ecclesiastes 3.4, uh, 3, he wrote, 
there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And then finally, in Ecclesiastes 7, he would write, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And Solomon wrote that. You know, Solomon had a very unusual life, right? And in his great wisdom, he understood that it was in these times of sorrow that he was closest to God. The house of the wise, the fear of the Lord, drawing him close to God in his hardest times of his life. But no one can truly share what we're experiencing. Not our spouses, not our children, not our parents, our relatives, or our closest friends. And the challenge is to accept that and not to expect them to, to not become isolated or bitter. We can't share their experiences either. I mean, it goes both ways, right? We have to understand we can't, we can't partake of that either. And so if we're going through something, we feel like someone's not really able to, to relate to that, that's normal. That's to be expected. But the... But the the blessing that we have is that we know that God does know our hearts. God, where it says here, in no stranger, God's not a stranger to us. He's intimately familiar with us. He made us. He knows us. He walks with us. Jeremiah 20, 12 says, O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and mind. Proverbs 15, 11 Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. And the thing is, he not only sees, he not only observes, but he cares, he heals, he intervenes, he comes in and answers our prayer. And that's, the, I mean, what I say by that is there's certain things that we're just not going to be able to get from one another that we're forced to go on our knees and go before God and I'm sure many of you have been in that place where no one seems to get what you're going through but the Lord does and the Lord's been there and every single person that turns away from him and dies breaks his heart so how so Proverbs 15:13 says a glad heart makes a cheerful face but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And yet I just have to ask, so how do we get to that place? How do we get to that place of a glad heart when we face sorrow and suffering? How can we not be crushed under its burden? And a great verse is Hebrews 12, 2. We look unto Jesus. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knows what it is to suffer, to be hurt, to experience humiliation, loss, and pain. And none of us can relate to what he went through. None of us can do that, and yet he loves us anyway. That's what, we're, that's what that verse is talking about. The Lord can relate to us, but we can't relate to him in the entirety of what he gave for our sake. Yet it was glory. That's the thing. It wasn't, the goal wasn't suffering or humiliation. The goal is glory and life and victory. 
And for joy, he endured it all. And that's the place we have to get in our own hearts when we go through these things. And it's not an easy task, but, you know, the Lord's Spirit is, is faithful to, to walk with us through those times. The last, the, I wanted to finish, finish up the study. We're, we're on track. With this idea, again, of the fear of the Lord. And there's four verses in these two chapters that, that specifically say the fear of the Lord. There's another verse that goes along with it. But I just want to take all those together and go through that, that idea again and just kind of round that out. We've talked about it at the very beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that thing that draws us to a place of the greatest wisdom we can ever has, have is an acknowledgement of our own sin and our need of repentance. The fear of the Lord draws us to that place. But worldly fear, and this is where a lot of worldly people or just normal people may get this idea confused because worldly fear, worldly worry or anxiety or fear of things that may or may not happen is the opposite of faith. It's the enemy of faith, the destroyer of faith. When we dwell in that place, that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about here because fear of the Lord combines with faith. It doesn't destroy it. It combines with it with faith and love and produces kinship, unity, courage, and victory. And I've come to understand this fear of the Lord as, as being terrified of a life without him, terrified of going through life on my own, Rather than living in fear of judgment from him, fear of a life apart from his word, his grace, and his wisdom, forced to face all the evil of this world alone. Because I've been there, and a lot of you have been there too. That's the true fear of the Lord that, that is most applicable in my life right now. Fearing life without him. But let me read these verses in chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Moving into chapter 15, but continuing that idea, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure in trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So all those ideas taken together, we see is it gives a strong confidence. That can also be translated as hope. The simplicity of hope. Hope beyond our circumstances. Hope beyond what we can see. That's what the fear of the Lord gives us. It's a refuge. And that word is a... Is, is a you can think of a stronghold, a castle, a fortress, a refuge from rain, from storm, or danger. But that word is also used as a refuge from falsehood, a refuge from the lies of the world. That's what the fear of the Lord gives us. It says that it's a fountain of life. And Jesus elaborated on that idea, and this idea, and um, we've heard living waters. Whoever drinks, this is in John 4.14, 4, 
Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, coming to Christ in that fear of the Lord, but fear of being apart from him. I hope we can get that. Not running away from him, coming to him. It gives us freedom and discretion. We saw that passage where it says it, that we can turn away from the snares of death. That's that freedom and discretion. We don't have to be chained to our sin, not snared by our flesh. And to go on, it says it gives us contentment, wisdom, and honor. And just as Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, honored above all others, so God desires to honor us when we acknowledge and submit to his power, wisdom, and sovereignty. I don't have this verse written down. That's not the right one. (laughs) But God says... His desire when we humble ourselves before him, when we submit to him, isn't to abase us. It's not to humiliate us. It says, so that at the proper time, he may exalt us. Exalt us with his son. That's the gift of eternal life. So just to review the way to walk in uprightness and not crookedness, to walk with discernment, wisdom, and humility. We talked about the ox And let's be willing to get some stalls dirty. We talked about grief. In the times of grief, let us remember that we're not alone. And it can sure feel like that. When you're in a place where you seem like no one else understands what you're going through, those are the times that Jesus wants you to come to him one-on-one. God is not a stranger. He sees and cares and desires to hear. And the fear of the Lord To fear God is to fear nothing else. Not consequences of our sin, not judgment of others, not the loss of a loved one. To fear God is to fear nothing else. Father, we come to you and and, uh, just thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in it. Help us to live by it to walk in a way that pleases you. And um, it's so simple, but sometimes it feels so hard, Lord. I pray just give us eyes and, and help us, Lord, to, um, to, see, um, to see ourselves clearly and, and what we need to, uh, to fix or what we need to change or, or even what we need to just praise you for maybe even things that, that you're using us in that we're not aware of to, to encourage us to take another step. And we just praise you and worship you in Jesus' name.